Support for Modern Love comes from Living Proof. Calling all Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Volume seekers, ditch the products that just don't work. Living Proof's new technology delivers bigger hair that lasts. No teasing required. Use the code VOLUME at livingproof.com for a free travel size full dry volume blast with your $20 order. We are the science. You are the living proof. And by Blue Apron. Blue Apron will deliver seasonal recipes with pre-measured ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals for less than $10 each. Get three meals free with free shipping at blueapron.com modern. That's slash modern. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. From the New York Times and WBUR Boston, this is Modern Love. Stories of love, loss, and redemption. I'm your host, Meghna Chakrabarty. When Anne-Marie Feld woke up on her 16th birthday, she couldn't have imagined how much that day would shape the rest of her life. Here's Tony-nominated actor Hayden Gwynn reading Anne-Marie Feld's essay, Two Decembers, Loss and Redemption. On the afternoon, my mother died. She left work early. Her day as a computer programmer at Chase Manhattan Bank had skidded to an abrupt stop, courtesy of a system-wide computer failure, and all employees got the afternoon off. It was late December, my 16th birthday. Grey, snowless, cold enough to make the lawn crunch underfoot, but close enough to Christmas to make a few uncrowded hours seem like a gift, or in my mother's case, a curse. Rather than enjoying some last-minute shopping or hitting the couch, she methodically cleared her desk, drove the Honda home, fired up a pot of Turkish coffee, and hung herself in our garage. Twenty years later, my father insists that she wouldn't have died that day if the systems hadn't gone down. He might be right. Work gave my mother a structure that sealed the madness inside, if only for small chunks of time. Idleness brought trouble. My memories of my mother all have her working at something. Cooking, staying up all night scraping wallpaper, poring over fat textbooks to get her master's degree. In home movies, my sister and I, long-limbed and small-bodied, dance and do gymnastics in the foreground, while my mother lurks in the background, washing dishes or zooming diagonally through the frame on her way somewhere else. Though my mother worked full-time, my sister and I never lifted a finger in that house. It was spotless, without the piles of clatter and frozen tides of dust that mark my own house. My mother's madness seeped in so quietly that my father, an optimist to the end, was able to ignore it, believing that it would get better on its own. In our house, 
Questions about what we did and how we felt went unasked, or if asked, unanswered. I wasn't told about my mother's two earlier attempts at suicide and would never have guessed. In my mind, suicidal people raved and ranted. Mad women were locked into attics where they would moan and rattle chains. Occasionally, they set fire to country estates. They certainly weren't grocery shopping or dropping the kids off at the community pool on their way to the office. From fielding calls on the yellow rotary dial phone in the kitchen, I knew that my mother saw a therapist, a woman named Barbara, whom she tried to pawn off as a friend. I knew better. My mother didn't have friends. When I was 14, my mother started sleeping on the living room floor and wearing a dark grey ski hat with three white stripes. She seemed to drink nothing but gritty coffee and red wine poured from gallon bottles stored under the kitchen sink. She would send me into the pizzeria to pick up our pie, convinced that the men spinning crusts were talking about her behind her back. Limping along in my teenage bubble, very little of this registered as alarming. This was how all families were. As my mother's madness amplified, she came to believe that our house was bugged and her boss was trying to hurt her. But as long as there was a computer programme to write or a carpet to vacuum, she could be counted on to do it and do it well. On the morning of the day my mother died, I headed toward the door to catch the 710 bus to school. My mother and 12-year-old sister were just waking up in their sleeping spot on the grey carpet in the living room. They sang happy birthday to me, my mother's beautiful low singing voice frosted with my sister's tinny soprano. Eight hours later, I stepped off the Bluebird bus, looking forward to an afternoon of one life to live and all my children, and was disappointed to see my mother's car in the driveway. I dropped my knapsack on the window seat, stroked the dog's dusty ears and called, Mummy? Her purse sat on the table. I checked all the rooms but found them empty. Then I opened the door to the garage and stopped breathing. I shut the door, ran up the stairs and outside and sat on the cold concrete stoop looking up the street. House after split-level house stretched along the curved road with one thing in common. No one was home. All of the parents in my neighbourhood worked, and since I had taken the early bus home from school, the kids were still gone as well. I sat hunched over my legs, arms circling my shins as my heart slowed. Finally I stood up slowly opened the screen door, went back into the house and dialed 911. In the days that followed, my father, sister and I sloshed through a sea of awkwardness. The wife of a friend of my father's bought me a dress to wear to the funeral, a maroon velvet gunny sacks monstrosity with puffed sleeves and lace trim. Regular funerals are hard enough, the funeral of a suicide tests even the most socially skilled. When all the robotic thank-you-for-comings had been finished, my sister tried to open the casket when no one was looking. My father stopped her just as she was about to lift the lid. 
I just wanted to see her, she explained almost inaudibly. Other details needed handling, providing my first metallic taste of the kind of chores that come with adulthood. For the first time in my life, a formal party had been planned for my birthday at a local catering hall. The party favours, clear lucite boxes filled with Hershey's kisses, decorated with pink and silver hearts, sat in bags in the garage, waiting. But there would be no party. I picked up the phone and said over and over, I'm sorry, my sweet 16 is cancelled. By the time I was done, cold sweat ran down my wrist, wetting my sleeve. I didn't cry. On the day the party was to be held, I stood in Lomans with my father. My mother's dress for the occasion, a grey wool sheath with long sleeves, lay on the counter. The clerk told my father that the garment couldn't be returned. My father looked at the clerk and said very quietly, But she died. They took the dress back. And as soon as I could, I fled. First to college, then to a place as far from Long Island as I could manage, San Francisco. Every night I'd shimmy into a short black dress, tights and platform boots, and belly up to small scarred stages, staring at would-be Kurt Cobain's or boys in pork pie hats wailing Louis Armstrong covers, or nodding my head to the beat as shaved bald DJs spun in corners of warehouses while hundreds of people raved, shaking water bottles over their heads until the sun shot weak rays through dirty skylights. My rent was $365. I had some savings. Work seemed optional, as did stability. Over the next decade, I would have ten apartments, thirteen jobs, and at least as many boyfriends. I met Dave at a film festival while waiting in line to see a movie called Better Than Sex. We started seeing movies together, always picking films with sex in the title. Months after we'd run out of movies about fornication with no signs of doing so ourselves, he finally kissed me under a lamppost outside his front door. I was wearing knee-high black leather boots. He was wearing sheepskin slippers. He phoned every day. He listened. He smiled a lot. He told me I was beautiful. He made up rap songs about our love. He wanted to talk about everything from politics to my period. He wanted children. He was, as my best friend's father said, a good citizen. We found a house together a 1920s cottage on a street of Spanish Mediterranean houses in every colour of the rainbow. We split the down payment 50-50 and started packing. Driving alone through a torrential downpour to sign the title for our house, I lost it. I didn't do stable. I convinced myself that Dave was a con man planning an elaborate sting to separate me from my down payment. The year we'd spent together was the setup for the graft. Now I was going to be out $25,000 and a boyfriend. It was a hop, skip and a jump from there to standing at the side of the road, homeless and utterly alone, the victim of aiming too high. My hands were shaking when I pulled up outside the title company. Dave was standing there, holding an umbrella, waiting to walk me the ten feet from the curb to the building. 
We moved into our little house on my 34th birthday. Eight months later, just back from our honeymoon, he carried me up our wonky front steps and across the threshold before collapsing from exertion on the blue sofa in our office. Another eight months after that, a plastic stick with a pink line told us that our remodelling plans were going to have to wait. On my first visit, the OBGYN calculated the baby's due date. My birthday. I was terrified that my day of personal infamy would be shared by the next generation of my family. Friends spun it beautifully. It'll be healing. It'll give you back that day. The contractions didn't hit hard until Christmas night, four days after I turned 36. 56 hours after the first tremors hit my abdomen, three hours after the epidural wore off, I pushed my daughter into the world. I wasn't thinking about my mother, or about my sister who stayed at the head of the bed, cheering me on when I thought my body would rip in two, or about Dave, who watched tearfully as Pascal poured out. I thought nothing, and just lay there, shocked by pain and exhaustion. But when they finally returned her raw, chicken-like body to me after bathing her, my first thought was that she looked like my mother. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if the sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, that <laughs> should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. Hayden Gwynn, reading Anne-Marie Feld's essay, Two Decembers, Loss and Redemption. She currently stars as Camilla Bowles in the new British comedy series, The Windsors. Anne's daughter is nearly 13 now. We'll hear how her family is doing in a minute. Living Proof delivers bigger hair that lasts. Product tester Jamie explains what full-dry volume blast does for her. 
what they tested a lot on my hair was kind of the next day results. So they were looking for how long did this volume really stay? Once you applied it, did it fall flat in a few hours? And it really doesn't. In fact, in my hair, I think it looks better 24 hours after. It just, the hair held amazingly well and it was ready to go. It looked incredible. Use the code VOLUME at livingproof.com for a free travel size full dry volume blast with your $20 order. We're back. It's Modern Love, the podcast. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. When Anne-Marie Feld wrote this essay, she said it felt like being naked in front of the world. But at the same time, she called the process of putting this down on paper quite cathartic. Her family was equally supportive of her telling their story. I think it had been a difficult experience for all of us. And I think in the piece, there was this feeling of victory somehow. I don't know if victory is the right word, but this feeling that this horrible thing happened, this thing that that really could have blown up our family, and it didn't. We all survived it. Anne says both her parents had challenging childhoods. They were both separated from their mothers at an early age. And it's the role of mother that Anne says she wanted to reclaim for herself. I felt as a kid like my voice wasn't really heard. And in my mother's case, for me, she really wanted my voice muted because... Anything that I wanted was a little bit threatening to her because it would require something of her, and she didn't have it necessarily to give. So with my kids, I think that I've overcompensated horribly, and I've gone to the other end of the spectrum. And literally, like, my hearing is tuned to their frequency so much that if they call from another room, I will tune out whatever my husband is saying and listen to them. It drives him absolutely bananas, as, as you might expect. Anne's two children, a daughter and a son, are now 12 and 10, respectively. They don't know the details of their grandmother's death. Anne does plan to tell them when they're older. But as a rule, she doesn't tell many people about her mother. That's a stance she's starting to question. I've been thinking about it, getting ready for this interview, and thinking about just kind of, maybe I don't need to be really secretive. I think I probably need to be secretive for a little while while my daughter, you know, before my kids know, I don't want them to hear about it from somebody else. I think suicide is still, so, it's so stigmatized, and people are still so hesitant and weird around it, and I wish that that was less the case. I often don't talk about it with people because I feel almost like it makes them more uncomfortable than it makes me. Anne says she still lives with her mother's tragic death. However, her inability to support her mother when she was 16 has translated into a desire to reach out to people now. So she's volunteered for a suicide hotline. I think I decided to do it because this podcast is supported by Carvana. Looking for a new set of wheels? Shop for your next car the convenient way. 100% online with Carvana. Whether you're shopping for a vehicle at your leisure or if you need to get on the road, Carvana makes it super easy and hassle-free to browse their massive inventory of cars, whenever, wherever. Plus, Carvana has thousands of quality cars for under $20,000. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to shop for cars the convenient and affordable way. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look. 
Bath is a city in England, sandwich is a city in England, reading is a city in England, and I'm gonna guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say that <laughs> should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. I just wanted to, you know, kind of know what it was like for people in that moment and somehow be able to help. I don't think that time heals all wounds. I really think that time and love heals wounds. You know, we, we saw the Velveteen Rabbit yesterday and it talked about being... Um, how you become real when you're loved by a child. And I really feel like for me, I kind of became real when I was loved by a child. I stopped being, you know, kind of endlessly striving and moving and all of this stuff. I was able to just stop and and allow myself to be anchored by them. Anne-Marie Feld. She lives with her husband and two children in the Bay Area. She's a freelance writer and a children's librarian in her local public school system. In a moment, we'll hear from Daniel Jones, editor of Modern Love for The New York Times. Not all ingredients are created equal. Blue Apron sources fresh, high-quality ingredients and sends them right to your home in pre-measured packages. You get easy-to-follow recipes, so you can have a meal ready in 40 minutes or less. There's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want. Check out this week's menu and get three meals free, with free shipping, by going to blueapron.com modern. New recipes are created each week. That's blueapron.com modern. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Daniel Jones is the editor of the Modern Love column for the New York Times. He says the tragic details in this essay, the 16th birthday, the suicide, the phone calls, were so devastating that he almost couldn't believe it. It just took my breath away. And this essay really points to, you know, just this deep human need to make something of loss and trauma. And there's this this writerly and artistic impulse to try to make beauty out of pain. And I don't know, you know, I, I don't know how, how she was able to turn this story into something that was so beautiful and crushing. Uh, but it's, it's really a piece that I've always admired so much. Dan Jones, editor of Modern Love for The New York Times. Thanks again to Hayden Gwynn for reading this week's essay. She'll be featured in Disney's live-action Beauty and the Beast out in 2017. You can see her now in the wild comedy about the British royal family, The Windsors. We'll link to a trailer at our website, wbur.org slash modernlove. Next week on Modern Love, Emmy Award-winning actor and writer Pamela Adlon. 
It's hard to fathom at your wedding. This handsome tuxedoed man is publicly binding his life to yours and you think it would have to snow inside my house before I would ever feel anything but love for this man. Well, it snowed inside my house. I'm not saying that metaphorically. I am telling you it snowed inside my house. Modern Love is a production of The New York Times and WBUR, Boston's NPR station. It's produced, directed, and edited by Jessica Alpert, John Parati, and Amory Sievertson. This episode was directed by Peter Dubois, artistic director for the Huntington Theatre Company in Boston. The idea for the Modern Love podcast was conceived by Lisa Tobin. Iris Adler is our executive producer. Daniel Jones is the editor of Modern Love for the New York Times and advisor to the show. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. See you next week.